0: Um, so let's start with a word prayer.
1: Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for all that you have given us in your Son, Jesus. Today, we're especially thankful for the gift of prayer, that now in Jesus, our relationship with you has changed so that we can speak to you as children speak to their Father. We thank you for this gift and that you are so willing to hear us and answer our prayers, even as small and as insignificant as they may seem to you. You stoop down to hear. We ask that you bless our class, that we learn and grow and continue to uh, keep you at the center of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so I wanted to start doing something a bit new, and this is something I'm going to do with all the Bible classes that I teach in the future, and that is uh, I'm going to give you homework. Um, so the, and the homework isn't like learning Greek or uh, Bible vocab quizzes or anything like that. It is uh, just reading the Bible. So one one of the I think one of the major problems in the church today, uh, both among young people and older older people, is that we just don't read our Bibles enough. Um, and I include myself in that uh, as well. And so uh, one of the things I started I started doing with my confirmation class actually, uh, is I give them uh, seven chapters of the Bible to read every week, uh, along with their confirmation assignment. Uh, so what we're gonna do and, and don't be intimidated by that. Um, that can sound like a lot, especially when you're used to just reading a few verses at a time. But you can read Matthew 1, chapters 1 through 10 in about 15 minutes. It doesn't take long to do. And we're, we're, one of the places where this came from is a class a seminary I took on Matthew um, that was taught by one of our professors who actually wrote our biblical commentary on the book of Matthew which just three volumes long, and it's from the original Greek and all that. So he knows he knows this stuff. One of the things he assigned us in that class—it was a ten-week class—he assigned the reading the whole book of Matthew each week. So every week in the class, we read the whole book of Matthew in English. We didn't read the Greek, 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 Greek. Um, we just did excerpts in Greek. But that was a really—I found that to be an extremely helpful exercise to me, especially as we were studying that particular book. So. Since this isn't a book based study, we're going through the catechism. I'm just going to select a book and then I'm going to assign like 10 chapters. It's kind of divided up into chunks and just say, please read this throughout the week. And my recommendation would be to do it devotionally. So if you already have some sort of devotions you do at home, either personal or with your family, just add this into that. So, whatever, maybe I'll give you eight chapters then just break it up, maybe do one chapter a day, and then two chapters one day in your devotion. Um, so it's not meant to be a crippling thing. But the Bible does say that those who are faithful to God meditate on his word, right? And so I want to start having a practice like that to encourage, not only you guys to do that, but myself as well. Um, and then at, at the beginning of each class period, I'll probably just have one or two questions from within those chapters that we can discuss briefly. Um, so that you're not just reading it for your own gratification. A little little accountability helps us all. So that's just something I wanted to say kind of going forward that really has nothing to do specifically with today. So uh, I've been gone for a little bit, and so I know that you guys covered the beginning of the Lord's Prayer uh, January 2nd, so two weeks ago, um, and just wanted to do a little quick review. Does anybody remember anything from that class? Coop better. <laughs> <a good> <laughs> but, uh, I know, and that was meant to be sort of an introduction to prayer in general, so we'll go through a little bit of that today, uh, as leading into the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is one of those things that I like, I like to put these in this category of. They're old things that we take for granted because we hear them so often, but they're still significant. So even if it's Even if it's something that you've said a bunch of times and and maybe you've gotten to the point where you barely even think about it when you're saying it, it's still significant. And we're going to learn why that is. And for me, I think that's an extremely important thing in making it meaningful to be personal. So if you know why it is that we say this, so why do we say this so regularly? Why are we always praying the Lord's Prayer? Well, that's what we're going to learn about. We're going to learn about why that's such a prominent thing in the life of our our church and in our own individual lives as well. So, all right. So, if you brought your catechism, um, we're going to be doing, we're going to be going to picking up where I left off last spring. So, if you bought a catechism, make sure in the future classes to bring that with you. Um, so, I, for those who don't have them today, that's all right. I'll kind of read everything out loud for us here. So, uh, we're going to be on page 231, just to start with in our catechism 231. So we have gone through the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and now we're on the Lord's Prayer. So the first question that's asked in the Catechism here on page 231 is, why does the Lord's Prayer come after the Creed in the Catechism? So why are we talking about this after we talk about the Creed? So here's what he says. The Ten Commandments reveal how God created us to live with him and others. Right. So we have the two table. Uh, the Ten Commandments, Commandments 1, 2, and 3, are about our relationship with God. Very good. And then 4 through 10 are about our relationship with each other, right? Everybody else. Very good. The Creed shows us all that God has done that we might be his children and live according to his will. So it, an easy way to divide those is that the Ten Commandments is obviously law, right? And law is about, if do you remember the definition I gave you for law, this is going back a year, so okay. <laughs> that's that which shows our sin. That's one of the uses of the law, okay. but the law at its base is what is the easy error. definition is what we are to do for God, right? So law is always a command, and so like uh, and it helps to know that when you're reading the Scripture. So if I say, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations," is that law or is that gospel? It's law, right? There's a command there. Go therefore, right? So he's commanding us to do something, right? So take advantage of the law, what we ought to do for God, and then who is the subject and the actor in the creeds? God is, right? God the Father in the first article, God the Son in the second, and God the Holy Spirit in the third. And so the Apostles' Creed is describing the gospel, and the gospel is what God does for us. So in the law, we're the subject doing the action, and in the gospel. God is the subject doing the action. Okay. So that's a that's our basic divider in scripture. Because scripture consists of law and of gospel. And that's that's an easy definition to remember those by law is what we are to do for God, and gospel is what God does for us. All right. So following along here again, in the Lord's Prayer, we now pray for God's will to be done and for his gifts to be received in the face of all dangers. So the Lord's Prayer is a sort of a combination. We're commanded to pray, and we're praying that the will of God, the work of God, be done in our lives and in the world. And so it's kind of a natural progression. We start with the law, which is given in the Old Testament, right? That's the original covenant basis. Obviously insufficient. And so the gospel comes along in Jesus to fulfill the law, right? And now, now we are living our lives as Christians, and one of our Logos interactions is prayer with God, only made possible through Jesus, and we are asking that his will, his work, be done in our lives. And in the world. So That's kind of why that order is the way it is. All right, somebody who doesn't have a catechism, in your own words, or I guess you can if you haven't spoiled it already, in your own words, what is prayer? Talking to God, God. very good, right? Does it have to be spoken? No, No, right? You can you can have a mental prayer with God, right? So speaking to God, that's correct. Good, that's a the base definition, right? Um, So does it have to use certain number of theological words? (laughs) Do they have to be a certain length? What about the prayer? Does the prayer have to be a certain length? No, right? Um, and the reason I kind of I harp on that a little bit is that a lot of times I think prayer often gets sort of de facto placed in the category of spiritual of awesome well, or just really good at praying, and I'm I'm not one of them. And I think it's used as an excuse to not pray, and especially to not pray in the company of brothers and sisters of Christ.
0: Um,
1: and I say that it's not that, so that excuse is gone. Um, that prayer is a spiritual practice. So it's a discipline, something that you practice, and that's how you get good. And so when I'm teaching confirmation, I tell the kids, why do you think that I'm, I'm good and comfortable at prayer? Is it because I was just born that way? No, it's because I've said tens of thousands of prayers. Right?
0: Um,
1: and so and often I find it ironic that many of the people who are most nervous about that are usually very good at praying. They're just nervous about praying around other people. So don't be nervous about that. It's one of the gifts that God has given not only you as an individual but us together as a church. So you'll notice that in our church service we always have a section of the service called the prayer of the church, right? And I say that out loud. I'm the one speaking, but have you ever noticed the position I'm in, my body, I put my body in when I'm when I'm praying that? What are what are a couple of the things that you note know about my posture and, and body language? <laughs>
2: When you're t- talking to God,
1: you're facing the altar. Very good. I'm facing the altar. Back, turn it and speak to Very good. Right? Very good. So uh, when I'm talking to God, I'm facing Him, the altar, which is the physical representation of God in that space. Very good.
2: Also, you have the hands up this because you're giving it all to God.
1: Yeah. So I have that's the fancy term for
2: that is the Oran's position, uh,
1: <laughs> where you have your your arms out like this. But that's actually to denote that, like I'm sort of like the intermediary vessel of the prayer. So there's a reason it's called the prayer of the church. It's not the prayer of the pastor. It's the pastor in his office speaking on behalf of the church. And uh, and the, the content of those prayers we get from the scriptures. So um, so that's so that's one of the, the gifts that God has given us, not just as individuals, but as the as a community of believers as It's also one of the key ways that we share one another's burdens, right? If somebody that I care about in my Christian community has lost a loved one, there's not much I can do for them, right? But I can't for them, right? That's one of the ways that I'm sharing their burden, right? And it's good to let them know you're doing that so that they know that they're not alone in the burden that they're bearing. Um, So so I'd encourage you, if you haven't, done a lot of praying with your brothers and sisters in Christ to begin to seek opportunities to do so. It is great blessings. Not only for them, but also for you. Uh, I had a, When I did my pastoral internship at Virginia Tech, I had one student, I was uh, he was going to go off to an exam. His name was Brian. And I told him, good luck. And he was like in the middle of taking a step and he turned around and said, I don't need luck. So What do you mean? He said, I've got Jesus. I said, well, that's true. Uh, and so, one of the things that he does, that he did that I picked up from him was that he doesn't say good luck and he doesn't say, I'm going to pray for you. He says, You know, you would immediately ask, Can I pray for you? And then do it right there. Because right? how many times have you said, I'm going to pray for you, and then not because you're mean and you don't want to pray for them, but you just forget. Right? Or maybe some of you are mean and you didn't want to pray for them. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but this, this was a habit that I developed after experiencing with him. And I really enjoyed it. So now every time somebody's got something going on and that, some of you may have experienced this with me already, I'll ask you, can I pray, can I pray you? Uh, and sometimes that's the express purpose of a phone call in and and spiritual care is so that I can say a prayer with you. Because what we're doing when we pray with one another is we're jointly coming together and lifting up a concern, whether it's shared between us or one of us individually is bearing it and placing it with confidence before the throne of God, because he's promised to hear us, and he's asked us to do that. Right. Um, so prayer is a great blessing in that regard. All right. So what's the deal, then, with the Lord's prayer? What makes it special? You may know. Okay, so God gave us this prayer explicitly, right? So the disciples ask Jesus. They see him going off and praying all the time. They say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And what Jesus didn't do is he didn't say, okay, first you say this, and then you say this. Make sure you always include one of these and one of those, right? Which is what you would expect if somebody asked you a how-to. You would expect a detailed analysis of how to put together a prayer. But instead, he gives us a prayer. Now, what's significant about the prayer that he gives us? Now, rewind back from all the times you said the Lord's prayer back to Jesus is sitting with his disciples in first century. And they're asking him this question. And then he gives them this prayer. What is the significant thing about it? So he's teaching us how to pray. So there's there's that. But what specifically about the prayer he gives us is significant?
2: Yeah. Well, he doesn't say pray this forbidden all the time. He says pray it like this.
1: Okay. Pray it like this. Yeah. So, not so much asking about the instruction piece, but the prayer itself. Well, he, he's saying, uh, our, our Father. Ah. He's treating it like his Father. Yeah. And he's not saying, this is my prayer. He's saying to his disciples to also pray his prayer. Because what Jesus is doing when he comes to earth and is baptized by John and dies on the cross and you get baptized is that he's binding himself to you and exchanging your relationship with God with his so now you can address God as Father. So up to this point no human being among the practitioners of the Israelites, and the Jews has ever addressed God as Father. Most of them never verbally speak the name of God given in the Old Testament, which is Yahweh. It's only written because the name of God was very sacred. And so this is extremely significant that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray his prayer as the Son of God because it's a foreshadowing of this change in relationship we have to God because of Jesus that now we are sons and daughters of God, and thus we can address him as such. But the uniqueness of that cannot be understated. Right, we went from, uh, through nothing that we ourselves did, we went from not even really being able to say the name of God to then calling God our Father and being able to go to him at any time during prayer. So one of the ways I illustrate this is the in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant set up with the temple, Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was allowed to come into the Holy of Holies. And he would come in backwards, bent over, throwing blood over his shoulder, and he had a rope tied around his waist because if the glory of God killed him, they had to pull him out. Because that was the nature of the separation between us and God because of our sin. We could not stand in the presence of the glory of God. So that was one guy, once a year. What happens when Jesus dies on the cross? Yeah. The curtain that separated the holiest of place in the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom, and the relationship through Jesus that you now have with God is more intimate than the high priest of Old Testament Israel, because you come into the presence of God when you pray. So this this is a helpful image for me. I always think when I pray, I'm I've been admitted to the throne room of the universe. And I'm addressing the king. And whose terms do you think you're allowed into that room on? Your own or his? his? His, right? So if he doesn't want you in there, you're not getting in. But he does. That's what he's communicated to you in Jesus. And he wants you here. And he wants you to speak to him as if he is your father. Right? So that's the really significant thing that happens in the Lord's Prayer, which is why it's such a big deal to us today. Not only is it given directly to us by Jesus, so that in and of itself makes it significant, but it denotes the massive shift from our relationship with God because of what Jesus has done.
2: Yeah. Interesting point, then. In, in the original language, was it more of a formal word, father, or did he use like the term, Abba, meaning Daddy?
0: That's a good question. I'll have to look at that. I'm not sure. I think,
1: so the question was, uh, is the Greek word for father used there as more of a formal address or is it more incident? I want to say it's Ava, uh, but I'm not 100% sure. I'll have to look at that. That's um, But I would say, like, there are there are people that like to, I think, just because they feel they can say, like, daddy, which is very weird. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's weird for a reason. Um, because it's not so much the uh, – like, the familiarity and the intimacy is the grace being extended by God. It isn't that, like, you then have free reign in the room and you can do that for which is, I think, sort of what that expression is know. Um, and I do understand the impulse to say stuff like that so that people aren't intimidated. But I think that even though God has invited us into the throne room via the grace of Jesus and that we can now address him as Father, there's still the fear of the Lord present because you're in the throne room of the king of the universe addressing the King. So that should be, that should always be done with a certain level of humility and deference. That's so, to me, that sounds... What... And not only that, I think there's a lot of, you have to be careful when you're playing around language, especially when it has cultural baggage. So it's used to denote different things. That's why I like certain songs that were really written during the contemporary Christian music movement were not great because they they sort of shifted the focus of the relationship and the love that God bears for us into a romantic context at time, which is very odd um, and isn't really the way that the scriptures speak of that relationship. And so our our sort of mode with this is we should speak in prayer as much as we can using the language we've been given in the scriptures. So that's why we're very big on using the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer because these are given to us. They denote the sort of posture and language we should address God. Yeah. I think also we got to remember he's still yeah. Yeah. The
0: holy. And we're
1: not yet fully redeemed. So I think it's a A good posture to have to never feel like you can take for granted the fact that you're allowed to speak to God in that manner, right? That, like, the posture should be one of constant thanksgiving and gratitude, that despite my unworthiness and through no work of my own, only through the work of Jesus am I allowed in this space and able to speak to God in this manner. Because otherwise, if Jesus isn't there, then we're back in the same boat with the high priesthood. Bowing backwards and throwing blood as an atonement and hoping that we don't just get obliterated.
2: Yeah. I was going to say it's also worship. It's also worship. So it's sort of, I, I think that's a troublesome potential connotation to say daddy, you know, in that sense. Yeah, a, the
1: point that Dave is making is that it's all, the prayer is also a form of worship. And so there's a certain amount of reverence played there that, that the language should, yeah, I do agree. Now, if somebody who's inexperienced in prayer, doesn't address God in like the exact proper way. if You are in a place of grace there, right? We're no longer under the condemnation law. So your first impulse shouldn't be, whoa, 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 you can't say that. Because <laughs> God knows who's talking to. Him. Um, and so there, you know, the, the, you do it in a context like this where you're learning about it together and you're trying to be as faithful as possible through this through this gift of practice of prayer. Okay. So that, that for me, is the really big piece when it comes to the Lord's prayer that's significant. Is this, the, it denotes this major shift in our relationship with God. We're no longer sinners who are in desperate need of atonement in his presence because that atonement has been made in Jesus. And so that that rift, that separation is no longer there. And that's a big part of what it means to be sinner and saint at the same time, right? Uh, that both you and I are sinner at the same time right now. The same portion is that in the presence of God, you are no longer condemned, right? Fully complete, right? Now, that hasn't been fully realized in the world until Christ comes again and makes everything, but you are fully redeemed right now, which means that when you're in the presence of God, he does not see a sinner deserving of wrath his wrath has been expended upon Jesus. He sees a beloved child. Right? Which is why it is not audacious of us to address him as such. Because he's invited us to do that. Right? So going back to the throne room image. Right, we agreed that if you're coming into the throne room, it's on the terms of the king. Well, the terms of the king are, you can come in as my children and address me as your father. Right? Now, like earthly fathers... When you come and address him, and you say, I'm really worried about this, or I want this to go this way, or I want this thing to happen, is he always going to answer the way you wish? No. Does that mean he was listening? No. No. What does it mean when God answers you differently than what you would like? Even about really important things. Maybe you're praying for a loved one who has cancer, and you're praying for a miracle of healing, and you've been praying for months and months or years and years and it doesn't happen. And
0: they die we can say Thy will be done, so you're mm-hmm. not always expecting the answer you
1: Right. Who Who is that phrase for? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It's for other persons, right? right? Because when you're the King of the Universe, you don't need somebody to tell you that your will is the thing that's going to be done. Right. It is going to be done because you're the King of the Universe. Mm-hmm. But that's a good exercise for you at the end of your prayers, especially very difficult prayers that you desperately want to end up a certain way. It's a really good exercise to end that, but not by my will, but your will be done. Where do we get that from? There's Lord's Prayer, and then there's another, we get another uh, very powerful example of it in scriptures.
2: Where the night before Jesus is to be crucified, he's sweating blood and says, yeah. Take this cup for me, but your will be done. Right. Um, and you know, he was like, I'd rather be doing anything else in the world at this moment. But it's your will, and I will do that if it's your will. Right. Um, and I, th- I think that's just, when you start looking at it from a human perspective, that's just amazing.
1: Yeah, right. So the, the example of Jesus praying in the Garden of the he's praying about the cup of wrath that God is about to pour on him for your sake, right? The, the wrath of against the sin of all everyone in the world for all time and space. And In that moment, like the human side of Jesus desperately wants there to be another way, right? And sometimes people think, well, isn't he trying to get out of what he's supposed to do? No, he's not, because at the end he says, but not my will be done, but your will. Um, And Mary says something also very similarly when she's been being told by the angel that she's going to bear the Savior and the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you'll conceive, and you shall name your son. Jesus and then her her answer is essentially I am your servant, let it be done, be done to me according to your will. Uh, I have just seen so many examples of people who are disheartened by prayer because there there was this created expectation that well, if you get if you get enough people praying and they're praying hard enough and you mean it long, you know, mean it enough and you're praying long enough and and fervently enough, then it'll work. But then when it doesn't, they, they're completely destroyed by that because they put their faith not in the one they were praying to, but in their own prayer. And that's a dangerous thing. Right? So I always want to emphasize that we're talking about prayer, including the Lord's prayer. Right, The main exercise of prayer is the acknowledgement that you're dealing with something beyond your own control and that you're entrusting it to God's care because he's the one who can do something about it. Regardless of what it is or something.
2: I was just asked I, about that. Oh, okay. Like you really, really, really pray for, you. You say for someone's help. It doesn't work out. You have to be really faithful to accept what, what that is. because you, know? mm-hmm.
0: you
2: know, it's not like God wants this person to die. Maybe he wants that person to be with him. I don't know how to word that exactly. I've seen people, like you were saying, that they pray, they don't, prayers not answer, and they're destroyed almost. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, so, that's why it's important that in the context of prayer, and especially in, in the context of life in this world, is always undergirded by the ultimate promise of Christ, which is that you and I are not citizens of this world. Right? Our world is the world's come. Right? So, if somebody that you care deeply about is dying of cancer and you're praying your heart out that it wouldn't be that way, and then it still ends up being that if they die from cancer. The only way that you can deal with the reality of that answer is knowing that they're now with Christ. They're now with the person who loves them the best, better than you, better than me, right? better than their spouse, better than their children. And... That, that sorrow is a temporary sorrow, but that's not an ultimate defeat. The other thing that I, I find helpful when you're talking about difficult situations like that is we don't always know the best good, which is a weird way to say that, but that's what I mean, right? Like maybe the, the courage, the graciousness and the peace that your loved one exudes in the face of this trial God is using to bring more people to faith than if he would heal. Because in a certain sense, like, this is a bit overstating, but you'll know what I mean. Like, God doesn't really care about your cancer. I mean that in the sense that, like, what he's concerned with so, is right. whether you're going to be with him in his kingdom. Right? And so, that the good of your temper, your temporal healing on earth may be subordinated to the greater good of salvation for the the loved one you care about because maybe they're under a spiritual attack that you don't know anything about or for the one that is being witnessed to by their by their suffering in in christ right so um like do i wish that that the countries that have outlawed christianity wouldn't persecute christians of course but i also subordinate myself to the will of god and the knowledge that maybe he's using that for something far greater than what i'm hoping for in my prayer right and so the basic posture we have in prayer is this humility that is entrusting things to god because he knows and i don't right um and so that is what allows you when you're having even even when you've been praying desperately for something for a long time and it doesn't go the way you want that's what allows you to be able to deal with that. It doesn't mean that the pain is taken away, and it doesn't mean that it's any less difficult. But I think it is, it's easier to deal with. And really, I think in some sense, this is the only way you actually do deal with some of these things, is having that, that knowledge that the ultimate need of this person I love has been met in Christ completely. So, regardless of what comes out of the situation. They're good. I know they're good. Right. And so even if death comes to soon or in a painful way, or whatever it is, they're good. Right.
2: And that, that kind of undergirds. Dave. I'm just going to say we sort of define our own devastation, and we and we look at it and that's what you constantly get with people who say, well, there can't be a God because look at all the bad things that we let happen. And that's and it's really it's the back seat, but it's so hard when you're, you know, in a secular vein to say, but that's not the big picture. But that's the real challenge for all of us, for any of us who've lost ones. It's not like we get it. Whenever you're experiencing that, lost right. love, us, all those thoughts still creep into your mind. Right,
1: right. And, and that's why Paul doesn't dismiss the sorrow and the pain. Right. Right? He doesn't say you shouldn't mourn. He says that you shouldn't mourn as one who has no hope. Because your hope is 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 that fact that that warning is temporary; that death is not the victor; life is the victor. Right? And actually, your comment about uh, defining our own devastation—maybe uh, I've now decided which book we're going to read. We're going read Job. Yeah, because and, and I think it's it's very it's very related to this conversation. Actually, that um, most people think the book of Job is about. Enduring suffering. It's really not. The book of Job is about the the reality that you're not God, right? Because the answer that that God gives to Job when he cries out after all this stuff has happened to him, all of his friends have tried to explain it away. So, oh, surely you did something you just can't remember to offend God,
2: right? Um,
1: And when Job cries out to God, eventually God's answer is just simply, I'm God. So he's, and he phrases it by saying things like, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Right. In other words, like, who are you to question me? Which is a difficult thing to deal with, because we like to think that we have at least some control of things. We really don't. Um, so, and prayer is a helpful exercise because it's the lived experience of that reality. Like, when, when do you go to God in prayer? When everything's going great, do you feel like you're in control of your life? don't you go to god in prayer when something's happening that you know is beyond your control and you're at a loss for what to do and the crazy thing about our god is that his grace extends enough to where even if he's the last person you turn to he still hears your prayer right lewis has a quote about that where like even if the is talking about like a captain of the ship and even if the captain of the ship has tried absolutely everything else and the only time he calls upon god in faith is as he's going down he has no other choice our god still hears God still listening, right? Um, and that, that sort of humility and trust is, is exercised beautifully in prayer. That you're coming to God by the faith that He's given you in the Holy Spirit, so at His own urgings, right? He's, he's pushed you towards Himself so that you can give the thing over to Him that He can deal with that you can Um, to the
2: same question. Pastor of ours, the congregant asked, "Why doesn't God answer my prayers?" And and this is how the pastor answered. I thought this was was very interesting answer he gives. Every once in a while, in our sinful nature, somehow our heart and mind might be aligned with God, and then your answer will be yes. (laughs) A lot of times it's no, but the vast majority of the time, because you can't fathom the mind of God, it's. I'll handle that, but in a way that you probably couldn't understand. And I went, wow, um, right. that that's probably really where we need to be to, to, to realize our intelligence is, is, is foolishness to God's wisdom. And we sure. need to realize that all the time when we go to Him in prayer.
1: Right. And when, even in those instances where somebody is wrestling through that, God has used their prayer as an opportunity for them or perhaps... A brother or sister in Christ to address that spiritual issue. With them. That, like, I think that you have a wrong idea about the way prayer works, and I want to help you understand what's really happening here. And that it's, it's better than what you think. Like, God's not your pez dispenser. <laughs> right?
2: Yeah. And also, in our third journey, back from what we said, there was the time when we were glad, thank God that you did answer. Right? Yeah, that's a great
1: point. Yeah, the the point was made that sometimes, you know, a year later or a couple months later, you you are thanking God that he didn't answer the prayer the way that you wished he had. Because, as it has been pointed out by numerous comments here, he knows the best, right? And so our vision is is very narrow, and it's very short-sighted and so it's easy for us to do that. Okay, so that's kind of the, the general prayer introduction. Um, and, uh, the Lord's prayer comes into the life of the Christian in that context. And it's sort of the, the central piece to that context because it's the prayer we've been given by Jesus that sort of centers that whole aspect of the Christian life. So, um, I gave you guys a handout there. Uh, we'll, obviously we're not going to get through it all today. Um, but the first petition, so it's just January 9th on there just because we didn't get to it last week. Uh, that's the that's the correct Um, so the first petition so let's just say that this uh, everything in this box together hallowed be thy name what does this mean god's name is certainly holy in itself so we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also how is god's name kept holy god's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it, help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. Let anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Protect us from this heavenly Father. Okay, so... Uh, hallowed is just another word for uh, made holy, so we're praying that God's name is holy, um, and as is sort of the paradox with prayer, it's not as if God isn't aware of the situation until you tell him.
0: Right.
1: So in the same here, it's not as if his name isn't holy, it is holy, right? And part of what our prayer is, not that his name become holy, but that his name is treated and maintained as holy among us, that we Treat the name of God as holy. So the prayer is actually for us, right? That uh, that God's name is kept holy among us, right? And then, as it is with catechesis, this question and the answer. So that leads to the next question, which is, okay, how do we do that? How do we keep God's name holy? What's the answer given here? How is God's name kept holy among us? Follow His word. Yeah, right. We follow His word, right? So going back to our discussion a little bit about a little bit earlier about my. We take our cue from how we ought to speak to God from him, from the way that he presents himself and asks us to. And scripture is full of those things. And so that's one of the reasons that I think um, I want to have this particular emphasis on reading the scriptures. Is I think it's easy for us to lose the language of the scripture without really being And I think that that's a significant loss. So I, it always makes me think of we had this really funny moment. My first year at the seminary, we're taking Greek readings, and we were going through um, uh, blanking on it. It's in John. And the word was, and you guys have all heard the word, propitiation. That's the English word, right? And we were learning it in Greek. And uh, so we're reading in Greek and then translating in English. The translation, of course, is propitiation. And one of the guys raised his hand and says, why do we use that word? I don't think very many people know what it means. Shouldn't we? And his question was, shouldn't we use an easier to understand word? Seems like a reasonable question, but the teacher's response was sort of—he I mean, was a very funny teacher, so it also stood out because I said—and he sort of tongue in cheek said, "Well, I don't know. You could perhaps teach them what the word means, <laughs> right?" <laughs> um, and so. It's it's it just stuck out in my mind because it's kind of a goofy example, but it really is talking about sort of the two main approaches, to it, which is do we take the difficult things in the word and we sort of massage them into something that's easier to understand, or do we teach and learn the language of the scriptures? Now, that's not it's not necessarily always a yes or no. Right? Is there some value in explaining in, in different words? What a a difficult concept means, yeah, of course. But if you're working from a prime source like we are with the scriptures, all the basis of our confession is the Bible. Whenever I made my vows to be a Lutheran pastor, abide by the the teachings of our, our synod. Those are all based on the word of God. Whenever you became a member of this congregation, you made those same promises. So abide by the word of God. This would be the rule and norm of practice in life was the scriptures. And so it stands to reason that that's the approach we're taking, that the language of the scriptures should be a priority for. Now, it doesn't mean that, like I said, we don't explain things or we break down language and simplify things, but it should always go back to the language of the Bible,
2: right? And we
1: like to become a pastor in our church. The reason we value that so highly is exhibited by the fact that you've got to pass exams in biblical Greek and Hebrew before you can even go. Say, because that's the source. That's the material we have got, And so, you better know it. Right? Because that's where everything else comes from. So even if, for temporarily, you need to have something explained in non-biblical terms, it should eventually lead you back to the scriptures. Right? That could be yeah, and getting back to the
2: Abba question, I looked I, I look it up oh, briefly, and uh, it's only used three times in the New Testament, and one of them is in Gethsemane when he's praying Abba Father.
1: And they also say it's
2: only it's also always used with Father, and there's this this little story. This guy said that he overheard a Jewish man in Tel Aviv, and he said to his young son, he said, "I want when I ask you to do something, I want you to call me Abba." And he said, this changed the way I understood the word Abba. And apparently, obedience is a is a big part of that. So is that the
1: word that's used in the...
2: So, no, it's not used in the, in the Lord's okay. Prayer. It's only in Gethsemane and then a couple of the...
1: You know, so a little more of it, like, continents. yeah, and so he the, like this guy described it Yeah, as, like, intimacy and obedience.
2: So right. even when you're using that term, you know, it's not like a, you know, our rendition of, of that. So, okay. so in English it would be almost like daddy, father. Yeah, I mean it's just a different
1: of, more yeah. like, maybe like more like dad.
2: Yeah, like okay.
1: Because uh, I think daddy has like this playful intimacy that's appropriate okay. for like like three year olds. Yeah. Um but that sounds different. Yeah. yeah. Well thank you. Yeah. So uh, for those watching online in case you couldn't hear all that um the word Abba was not used in Lord's prayer, but was also looked up that Abba and it has more of a connotation of intimacy and obedience. So it's not really like a playful, you know, yeah, not like our version daddy. Um, so thank you. Um, so go, sort of going back to those two approaches, you can see this actually reflected at large in the church, right? So. Um, I'm actually listening to a podcast right now that's kind of talking about some of the history of the mega churches in the United States. And uh, one of the things they talk about in there is this seeker-friendly service sort of uh, strategy. And that's what the seeker-friendly service would do. The seeker-friendly service would remove the difficult terms, the difficult aspects of the Christian faith in the worship service, so that it was more friendly to somebody who was unfamiliar with is that a bad impulse? Well, not the, so not the execution specifically in the context of the Secret Service, but the desire that drove it. is that a bad desire? No, right? because that the, that desire in its face is they want to communicate the faith in a way that won't you know, drive people away. But another issue that that we take with that in art in our church body is that we would say that that denotes a lack of trust in the working of the Holy Spirit, right? Because you're trying to, instead of giving the whole picture of the gospel as presented in the scriptures, you're presenting essentially your version of it that you think is more palatable to the admission. Um So at the outset, it already had some issues, but can you guess, or maybe you know, what ended up happening as a result of that? So the goal of the Secret Service was sort of like an introduction to the church. So you go to the secret service and you've never heard of this guy named Jesus and there wouldn't be anything really, you know, difficult or hard to understand. And then eventually then you would go to the full service. Okay. Does anybody know what happened?
2: There is no.
1: yeah. Yeah. They ended up never having a full service because people would go from the secret service to the full service. And what, that, what we learned from that as a church is that at some point, you need to be, able to be confronted by the difficult aspects of the faith. They're a reality that you can't escape from. And if you push it off, it turns out that you just always push it off for the most part. So uh, we actually don't really do people any favors by not teaching in the language of the scriptures and the teachings, even the ones that are different, right? Even though, like, that's why I don't change the gospel reading but after I read the gospel, you can almost hear everybody in the church go, <laughs> And then we all have to say praise to you, O Christ, as if we not just read this ridiculous thing that was like talking about gouging eyes out. About time, right? So, um, and the reason we don't do that is because that's, that's the source, right? My sensibility isn't the source. My personal opinion isn't the source. Your your sensibility or our, our, our offendedness or whatever, that's not the source part of our community. The scriptures are. And so we're forced to wrestle with those things. And prayer is a good exercise in that because it's sort of the lived admission of that reality. Like, this is how I'm going to embody my relationship with God, which is I am subjected to him, the obedience, right? Um, And acknowledging that I have no control over all these things that I'm speaking. Even when I'm asking for, like, wisdom and guidance and discernment, Those are all coming from him. Right. And so I'm acknowledging this reliance on God when I go to prayer. Okay. Um, and then so we have this question here: how does this petition parallel the second commandment? The second commandment shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Yeah, not take the name of the Lord in vain, right? Here we're praying that his name is kept holy. Very good, right? So parallels that that quite well All right, then there's some scripture passages here, um, which we'll we we'll kind of end on this since this is part of our discussion. Um, so we'll first look at Psalm 138 verses 1 to 3. So this is how are we to use God's name in prayer. Psalm 138 verses one to three. And I'll just read it so everybody can hear it online. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your
0: faithfulness.
1: For you have exalted above all things your name and your work. On the day I called, you answered me by strength of soul. Even grace.
0: So what is that one saying about how we use God's name in prayer? Gratitude
1: and reverence?
0: Why? What else does it say
1: is going on with the name of God? It says I give you thanks, but it also says I bow down toward your holy temple I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Or you have exalted above all things your name. It's a weird weird phrase. So if, if you know one of you guys comes and kind of says, Trish says, I've exalted my name above all things. <laughs> right? Uh, and that's also when when they talk about naming Jesus, where right? They say that it's the name above all names,
0: right? Um, why do they talk about
1: it? So why are we saying that his name is exalted? Right? That is what we're doing. Why are we doing that? Why are we why aren't we saying that God is exalted? Why are we saying that his name is exalted?
2: symbol right it's a yeah. symbolic representation of God. Right. It must have been that maybe it's a little more prominent in their
1: culture. I mean when we like disrespect somebody's name, you know, maybe today, oh that's comedy, but but we still I mean it's still really there. It's not as like formally obvious I would say. But if I I mean if you say certain names like Bundy like I don't just think of a name. I think of a particular person and all the stuff that comes with that, right? And so the reason it's spoken of this way, the reason that God's name was of such value in its being spoken or written was because it is a symbolic representation of God himself. So when you're talking about the name of God being exalted above all things, is acknowledging the reality that God is above all things. But the name is almost synonymous with God himself. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. I, you are also admitting, yeah, that phrase is like, "I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name." Right? Is that right? Right. And not only that, but you don't want to, you don't want to take the Lord's name in vain because it's. Essentially taking him. In there,
2: right?
1: uh, yeah, very good. All right, the next one. So uh, Isaiah 6, 3 through 9. Isaiah 6, 3 through 9. Okay,
2: here
1: we go. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I have lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So there's your throne room image there for you. And the way that apart from Jesus, that's what you would feel in the presence of God's throne room. Like, Woe to me, which is essentially like, I'm about to be a believer. Um, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal that he had taken up from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, here am I, send me. and he said, Go and say this to, his, to this people. Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. So the key here is verses um, verse five. Woe is me for I am a for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Right. So holy is the name of God. My mouth is not a holy place. Right? Uh, my lips are not a holy place. Once I reach a certain understanding of my own faith, the phrase I give my heart to Christ seems like the cruelest joke naturally. My heart is like the worst possible gift to give to anyone. Why would I give it to Jesus? Right? As if I'm doing him a favor. Or as if me speaking his name is some good thing. Well, the reason that you weren't supposed to speak the name of God is, right here, I am a man of unclean lips amidst the people of unclean lips. Right? So then, denotes uh, again, that humility and the posture of prayer. And then what has to happen in order for, notice that uh, he's not able to address the Lord, the King, until what happens? Well, coal right coal touches his his mouth and and then the seraphim says behold this is such a less your guilt is taken away and your sin right who does that for us Jesus. Jesus right so then we can speak to the king the word us right and then john 17 the last one
0: John chapter
1: 17, and starting verse one, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming too. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is
0: truth. So what's God's name here?
1: Word, the truth, right? He's talking about keep this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying on behalf of his disciples, and then by extending us before he begins his passion, before he leaves, right? And so he's saying, After I leave, keep them in your name, right? The name of God as a protection, right? Keep them in your name, the name that you have given me. I've guarded them, right? While I was here, I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas there. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you in these things I speak in the world; that they may have my joy fulfilled. The right. So um, the name of God is, is a powerful thing. Right? It's not an insignificant thing. Therefore, when it's spoken in blessing, it has power. Which is why it also is not good to speak in vain or cursing. Right? Uh, so, all right. That's kind of our introduction here for the Lord's Prayer. His prayer in general. As per usual, if you have any questions, even if they're not related to the Lord's Prayer, the same thing I I did last last spring, Um, write them down, send me an email, um, and I'll make sure those get addressed through the course of the class, or we'll just talk about the following week. Right? And your assignment. (laughs) Should you choose to accept it? I'm not gonna self-destruct so you're out of luck. um, is the book of Job, and I want you to read the whole
0: thing. <laughs> oh. no, no. That's
2: not 15 minutes. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have seven days.
1: Um, I want you to read, I think, the, read the first ten chapters. Job one through 10. Like I said, I'm, I'm not, we're not going to really, the purpose of this isn't really to grill you on those chapters and really dig into that. But I just want you to view the words, maybe a couple of like, general questions about that for our discussion. And if you do in reading it, come up with something that you're really unsure of or want to ask and discuss, bring that with you next week as well. All right? All right, let's close with here. Dear God, we thank you so much for the gift of prayer, for this ability now through Jesus to address you as our Heavenly Father, and that when you look at us, you see your beloved children, no longer those who are enemies of you with unclean lips, but who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We ask that you help us to engage in prayer more often for ourselves and among our brothers and sisters in Christ, so that it may be the, it may be the blessing you intended to be. And help us always to know and to Entrust our concerns, our thanksgivings, and our gratitude into your will. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.